Well, hello, everyone. We're glad you made it today. Welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. I'm really glad you're able to join us. Actually, this is our first program of the year. Can you believe that, everybody? It's 2019. I haven't seen you guys since last year. That's right. We haven't spoken since last year. That's right. We've taken two weeks breaks off. If anybody tried to come in and watch the programs on those last two Tuesdays, obviously we weren't here. Yeah, um, you two guys look a lot older since last year. I know. <laughs> I can't help it. It just just keeps happening. Um, but we're doing something new today, too, something a little different. Um, you can now come in and watch us live. I hope people are going to be able to watch us live on the live stream on um, – the Bible Quest uh, YouTube cha- YouTube channel. <laughs> We're going to do that one today, um, and uh, I think you can go to uh, any of the personal Facebook pages and find the link there to get to our YouTube channel. Uh, or if some of you are already on board now, watching us through the Zoom app, we're glad you're, you're able to join us here. If you're coming in on the Zoom app, use the uh, Q&A button to give us your questions, pop up that little window and type away. If you want to come in using your audio, you're welcome to do that as well. Just raise your hand on that little other button and we'll let you, that'll let us know you want to come in and talk to us or give us a comment or question on the audio. Um, and I think in the YouTube uh, channel, there should be the chat area that's going to be streaming live as well. And so that leads me to my next point is let me introduce the the team here. I'll start with uh, Jonathan. He's our webcast engineer. And Jonathan, you're going to be watching the YouTube chat, right? And everything coming in on that. That's right. You here. Uh, Stephen Rouse from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Drew. Doing pretty well. Good. Scott Smelter, our program director. We're glad you're here today, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Good to be with you. Hey, did you just change the lighting in there? I like that piano back there. It looks great. That's an old player piano. Yeah, I had one similar to that. Oh, let me get not get off track here. Jeff, good to see you from Exton. How you doing, Jeff? Doing fine. Last and least. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I start off with you first. Though. We, we, we switch it up. I, I, I was thinking, you know, last but not least. Well, in this case, maybe last and least. Last, okay. Yeah. Oh, I see your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's uh, welcome everybody for the new year, and hopefully we'll have some good discussion and topics this coming uh, year. Uh, We're starting off with one today that came in from a a viewer, David, who said, uh, how does one maintain self-control? Now, that's an interesting topic. We have a lot of scriptures we can refer to. We want to get into the actual um, operations of how do we do this kind of thing. Guys, where do you want to start? Scott, you want to start us off? Uh, okay, Stephen's got your hand up. So we're going to be going around and <clears throat> practical ways to do that with scriptural reasons behind it. Stephen, start us off on one. Well, the first thing I want to think about is just what's kind of interesting to observe is in this world, there are a lot of things that are outside of our control. Actually, when you think about it, the majority of things are outside of our control. We can't control the weather. We can't control politics by ourselves. We can't control what other people do. We can't control our, uh, you know, what happens to us a lot of the time. What is the one thing that we have control over? What I do. Ourselves. <laughs> and yet, what is one, like, the one thing we have so much trouble with? 
What I do. <laughs> so one thing we have control over, uh, we have a very hard time controlling ourselves. And Matthew 7 points out the foolishness when you're looking at the moat in somebody else's eye and ignoring your being, spending too much time trying to change other things that are not in our control, failing to do the single thing that's in our control. Yeah, that's right. So the first passage I wanted to look at was Hebrews 12, verse 11. And this is in the middle of a discussion on discipline and on particularly God's discipline for us, that if we're going to be uh, children of God and he's our father, he's going to discipline us. We're going to suffer at times. But he points out something that is really important if we want to maintain and grow in self-control. Uh, in Hebrews 12, verse 11, Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, so this verse points out that there's two things that we can be looking at <laughs> uh, when it comes to self-control. One is, how does it make me feel right now? And generally speaking, when we're having to exercise self-control, how does that going to feel in the moment? Not so good. Uh, we don't like it. That's why it's called self-control, not self-indulgence. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it, it's painful in the moment. We're disciplining ourselves. But... How is it going to feel later when we make good godly decisions? Better. That's going to be a blessing. It says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I've heard it put this way before that everyone is going to face one of two types of pain. You will either face the pain of discipline or you will face the pain of regret. That's and I think that's a helpful way to view it. So if we're going to grow in discipline, we need to think about now and later. And the decisions that we make now and how that's going to affect us later. What are y'all's thoughts? Excellent. Good start. Drew, what's, uh, what's one of the first ones you came up with there on how uh, to get better at self-control? Well, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, it comes down to motivation. What motivates me to do anything? If I'm out of control, it's because am I really out of control or should I want to do something else? And I think it's a motivation on what is it we want to do. We want to serve the Lord. We want eternity. Or do we just want to serve self? We just want to take the <clears throat> as of now. Now, one of the things I, I, I remembered was that Paul, he struggled with these things. At least he talks about that struggle, right, in Romans 7. He says, in Romans 7 and 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I must serve the law of God with my mind, 
rather with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So I, it's a battle that we go through, and we lose control, if that's the right way to say it, when I really want to serve self. So he, he, he is sharing, he, Paul's showing us the, the battle that we're going through, doing good versus bad. And, uh, yeah. I was trying to think, well, what about, can I give an example, a case study? And, you know, as you guys know, I lost a considerable amount of weight the last year. And over the holidays, I lost control. And so I said, this is I bet not you good. gained something. What's that? I bet you gained something when you I lost. I did gain. I, that's a good point. And that's when I started realizing that scale said, hey, you're gaining something here because you lost control. So then I started saying, well, how do I deal with this struggle? Well, what is it I want to do? I really want a, a healthier me. I don't want the instant satis- gratification. Now, I, the first thing I had to realize is you got to own up to your sin. You got to own up to your, you got to you confess your sins once another is the principle. So you need help in these certain, like in my case, I have to admit it. I'm a food addict. So the moment I start recognizing that, I can start gaining control. And I think the scriptures teaches us, share your sins with another. So I go to someone else who shares the same struggles, and we help each other and support each other. So I I find that that's where I can get help in the areas that I feel like I'm losing control. Notice the paradox that as you lost control, you gained weight, and as you gained control you'll lose weight. I um, love the analogy. <laughs> yeah. After we finish this discussion, I'd like us to go as a second topic to go back and talk about the context of Romans 7, because there is certainly a struggle there in battle. But as a secondary question, we'll look at that later. Uh, but thanks, okay. Drew. Yeah. What's a, what's a practical point in Scripture that you would go to to talk about how to – improving self-control. I'm going to try to do this in bullet fashion and hit two or three real quickly, if that's all right. In 1 Corinthians 9, I think what we see is it's active, it's not passive. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, in verse 26, I therefore so run as not uncertainly, so fight I as not beating the air, but I buffet my body, I bring it into bondage. Um, Too many people think of self-control and they're waiting for something to happen to them to give them self-control. People want to talk about the spirit taking over. Self-control is mentioned as a fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. What that means is somebody who is following after the spirit, a consequence result is he is able to control his impulses because his impulses are no longer the boss. The word of God revealed through the spirit is the boss. Just two more. And we can elaborate on some of these, but I think seeing our, our war against temptation as a spiritual battle, it's not just I am fighting this desire of the flesh, but there are spiritual entities that are, have a vested interest in, in me succumbing. And uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about our warfare, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. If I can realize when there is some circumstance in which I might give in and do the wrong thing, it's not just me and this thing, it's me and the devil. 
there are, there are spiritual forces at war against me. I need to learn, as it says in the 97th Psalm, to hate evil and realize there is an evil one who's working against me. And then going on in Ephesians 5, it says in verse 18, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit. So certainly praying is important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because when people pray and ask for strength, one reason people don't pray and ask for strength sometimes when they're tempted is because they don't want strength right then. Right. You know, if, if, I, if I really believe I'm talking to my creator and I say, help me not do this, and then I choose to do it, that's going to kind of make me a little bit shy about going back to my creator and really talking to him. You know, if I talk to him and I mean it, then, then I ought to be in it, in that battle. Right, very good. That's, uh, uh, before you go, Scott, I was uh, uh, responding back to Jeff. Jeff, in, in James 4, uh, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? But that's the last exactly. half of the verse. The first part is talking about what you're talking about. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Mm-hmm. Resist the devil. So put the contrast there and submit to God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I've got three. The first one is, and then we'll go on to some of y'all's, what you just referred to, Drew, a sense of submission. One problem we have trouble with self-control is because we can feel like it's my life. I want to do what I want to do. Two things that remind us of submission. Number one, we didn't create ourselves. God created us. So he gets to make the rules. Number two, not only did he create us, but 1 Corinthians 6 says what? You are not your own. Right at the end of chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So if we have that sense of submission instead of that sense of entitlement, I ought to be able to do what I want to do. Realize I belong to God in two senses. Uh, Stephen, back to you. Yeah, really good points. Um, uh, Jeff kind of took my second one, but I'm going to come back to it because I'm looking at it slightly different. First Corinthians 9 was one place I was going to go. But I like how in First Corinthians 9, Paul uses a couple of different examples that he ties back to controlling ourselves, to resisting temptation. And he uses one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews, in a sense, in this text. At the end of chapter 9, he's going to refer to the games. And he says, you guys know the games. And you look at the athletes who discipline their bodies for these games and look at what they do and think about the, 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 the prize they do it for. In chapter 10, we won't talk as much about this. He says, look at the children of Israel, Jews, you're familiar with that. Look at them in the wilderness. Don't be like them. <laughs> but in, at the end of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, he says, do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he points out, he says, you guys have seen these games, and it probably in Corinth, he may be referring to the Isthmian games, similar to the Olympic games, but a different series. And they would have seen these guys who train and train and train, and they can't just eat whatever they want. They can't just sleep as much as they want. They can't just live self-indulgently. An athlete exercises self-control in all things. And for what? For a little, a little wreath 
and what's going to happen to that wreath in a few days, really, <laughs> a few weeks, it's just going to perish. Uh, it doesn't really mean anything in the end. So we, to motivate us, need to realize that the prize that we have before us is much greater than the prize that an Olympian or uh, any other athlete has before them. And so our motivation to discipline ourselves ought to be even greater. Very good. Very good. Drew. Well, I just wanted to uh, piggyback on what Stephen was just saying. It comes down to motivation. What is it we want to work for? What is it we want to achieve? Motivation. Yeah, what is it that God wants us to achieve? It's really the, the thing is uh, what, what are his goals, his plans for us? Yeah, but I'm only going to want his goals if I want his goals. If I don't want his goals, then I'll, I'll lose and do whatever I want, right? Yeah, absolutely. We need to make his goals our goals. But I've seen it happen before where people have kind of their goals for their spirituality. Well, as long as I get some nice friends and kind of, you know, get a little more disciplined in my life and have some nice self-improvement, you know, self-help kind of stuff, then I'm content. With, I, I got what I wanted out of my Christianity, and that, that can't be our approach. We need to want what God wants, and that's our hearts. Uh, that's not just a behavior change, but it's a heart change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, another practical thing. You know, I, I have had a, a thing over the past few years where I work with guys in kind of a halfway facility who are coming out of lives, many of them coming out of lives where they've not exercised self-control. They've gotten into drugs or one thing and another. And one of the things that I'm constantly reminding them is uh, when you get out of this facility here, don't go back to the same neighborhood. Don't go back to the same friends. Um, so this, in this battle to control ourselves, we need to limit the influences that would take us away into sin again. And there's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, where he says, be not deceived, evil companionships corrupt good morals. When you surround yourself with evil influences, you know, if you're in a battle and you're fighting against um, bullets, uh, are, are you going to try to find the area where the bullets are, are, are the, mo the most numerous passing through the air? <laughs> you're going to try to avoid those things. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, it, and when we put ourselves back in it, then we shouldn't be surprised at the result. Very good. Um, number two, I've got the, the power of habit. Habits are really, really powerful either way. When we develop good habits, they're exceedingly powerful. When we develop bad habits, they're exceedingly powerful. I turn to James chapter one, and I want to take a look at that in just a second. But hit an expression night before last. When we start getting into a bad habit, what we are doing is we are setting a bad example for ourselves. Each time we do the wrong thing, each time we don't use self-control, we're, we're kind of making a rut. You know how water is going to run down a hill, you know, at the lowest point. If you keep digging a rut, it's going to collect that water more and more. And each time you do it, you're setting a bad example for yourself and a precedent for yourself, and you're going to, it's going to make it harder to do the right thing. Well, the opposite is true, too. 
when you start doing a different habit, it becomes powerful. And so in James chapter one, it says in verse two, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into manifold temptations or trials, knowing that the proving of your faith works patience or endurance. Let patience or endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. So when you face a challenge, you're going coming along and you hit a challenge, you're either going to fail to have self-control and is failing to have self-control, is that going to make you higher or lower? Lower. Lower. Okay, so you, you, you failed the challenge, now you're lower. The next time you're going to face that challenge, you're even weaker than you were before. So what's probably going to happen? It's easier to oh. do the wrong thing. Yeah, and so you're just going down the stairway like this at a faster and faster pace. Whereas when you face that challenge and you do the right thing, are you weaker or stronger? Stronger. Yeah, and it's going to make it easier the next time to do the right thing. And after you've done that several times, what's happening? You're making yourself stronger. That's the thing is I know a lot of New Year's, everybody starts uh, like new workout routines, goes to the gym again or whatever. And the first day back is always the hardest because you've, you've been making those bad decisions for a while. And the first day is like, oh, and the thing to remember, though, is that if you keep not going, it's not going to get any easier. I'm this is true. I'm preaching to myself right now. But the more you make good decisions, the easier it becomes to make good decisions. It, it can be a downward spiral, but it can also be an upward spiral if we're willing to make that first step in the right direction. Speaking of New Year's resolutions, uh, Stephen, you were with us when we were doing our resolutions the other day. And being specific helps with self-control. <laughs> so, for example, I made some resolution. My first resolution for 2019 uh, is to get older. Uh, I want to have one. <laughs> so, like, in 2020, we're going to review and see if we succeeded. So I wanted to make sure I had one success there. Um, but another one was I gave myself something specific to do in the first week. So, like, my, my house was built in 1897, so we don't have a basement. We have a cellar. And there's a bunch of old stuff down there, and it's cluttered and broken old chairs and, stuff, and old metal, stuff that needs to go to the dump. And I've been needing to do that for a long time. Well, I put on my thing during the first week of January, I'm going to haul a load to the dump. Now, the dump is about 45 minutes away. And going down in there and finding all the spider webs and collecting it all and getting it up and out and all the way to the dump is a little bit of trouble. But I, I was specific. I'm going to do it the first week of January. Well, things kept coming up on Thursday, Friday. But guess what I did on Saturday? You know, because I was specific. I loaded it up and got to the dump. So just being specific. With it. So it's kind of the difference between saying I'm going to eat better and saying I'm going to eat four stalks of asparagus every every day and yes. not drink any soda. You know, if you say you're yes. going to eat better, then yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> right. And so with spiritual things, with sin, and that's what we're talking about then spiritually in our lives, let, let's get specific and, and say what it is I need to put out of my life. Yeah. You know, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. In Proverbs 5, son, stay away from the evil woman. And he talks about, yeah, don't don't embrace her, etc. But he says, don't go near her door. 
Yeah. Well, that's just a good rule. That evil woman over there trying to trap you, don't even go near her door. Because guess what? If you don't even go near her door, then the conversation doesn't start happening. Then, you know, the other things don't start happening. Just here's a rule. Follow it. Yeah. Uh, on this point, my third one was Daniel, the example of Daniel uh, in chapter one when he's a young man and in chapter six when he's an old man. In chapter one, he's confronted with a situation where it would not be right for him to eat this food that he's being offered. Well, saying being offered, <laughs> he's not in a position really to pick what he eats. <laughs> he says, you eat this. And he says in verse in Daniel one, verse eight, but Daniel resolved some translations say he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so for whatever reasons he made that decision, he's going to do what's right. And he says, I am not going to defile myself. And in this case, it's a negative thing. Here's something that he shouldn't be doing. And he says, I'm not going to do it at all. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to do it a little bit. I'm not going to do it. And so he's specific about that. In chapter six, I like that we see when the people are trying to accuse Daniel, the fellow rulers, are jealous of him, and they know they've got to get him on something with his God because he's devout and he's been devout for a long time. And of course, it's with the prayer that he does. And in Daniel chapter six, in verse 10, it says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, saying you can't pray to anyone but the king, he went to his house where he had windows and his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And so Daniel had a habit. He had something that he was going to do, whether it was difficult or not, whatever it cost him. And if Daniel had just decided that day, you know, I think I'm going to start praying to God it would have been a lot harder in that situation for him to, to do that. But this was something that he had done his whole life. And so when it got harder to do it, Daniel kept doing it because he had made that decision. Very good. Cassandra writes, falling into a struggle is different from purposely putting yourself into it. It is what you have committed to beforehand that can and will make a difference. First Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Good point. Yeah, it goes right back to that point. Don't even go to her door. Yeah. Uh, let's ask our tech guy, Jonathan, you're over there working on things, make sure programs run smoothly today, but do you have any comment on this topic? Then, uh, muted the whole time um but no i mean yeah good comment so far but it reminds me of what you were talking about um as far as um the, the successes the success will make you stronger and more available or, or more equipped to continue on with self-control i guess kind of the the simplest answer on how to maintain self-control is to maintain self-control um and peter kind of says that in second peter uh chapter one whenever he lists all the things um to do in order to make sure that you're not being ineffective or unfruitful uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, really starting in verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, for which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Um, for this very reason, 
make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness or some translations will say perseverance. Um, your self-control becomes stronger the more that you persevere. Uh, so to maintain your self-control, it, it takes, it, you have to actually do it. And so in our culture, our culture is sometimes described as the microwave uh, or there's the microwave generation. They want it now. And that's that kind of perspective that people have with self-control. Well, how do I get self-control? I want it now. Well, you get self-control by being self-controlled. And that seems like a backwards kind of answer, but that's the biblical answer. You, you do it. I want patience and I want it now. Yeah. yeah. Somebody that's familiar with it explained real concisely, because I want us to move on in, in a minute here and talk about Romans 7. So somebody explained the concept behind the marshmallow test. It was made famous several years ago and it's been repeated a bunch of times. Oh yeah. I remember that where basically the kids are put in a room and they're given a choice. They're given one marshmallow and say, you can have this one marshmallow right now, or you can wait. And if you wait and don't eat the marshmallow, you can have a second marshmallow also. And then they record the kids. They don't know they're being recorded and you see how they react. And some of them don't last very long. Yeah. You can go online and watch these tests. They'll leave the room. And some kids, you know, as soon as the person leaves the room. And now, how's that kid going to do when he gets his first? Uh, and, and I remember when I first read about this, they, they called it your, they used the term emotional quotient. And they said, your EQ is a better determinant of whether or not you're going to be successful in life than your IQ. Hmm. So if you have an I, IQ, but you are not willing to use self-control, you can be a, just a disaster. And they said that how these kids do can be a remarkable marker of how they're going to do in life unless they change their character. So that kid that immediately pops a marshmallow in his mouth, what's he going to do when he goes to a party and there's some drugs offered to him? What's he going to do when a loose woman hits on him? What's he going to do when he gets his first credit card? If you're looking for instant credit, you can see all the bad decisions that are coming. Whereas other kids, they will sit there and they'll see that marshmallow and they will wait and they will wait and then they will wait. The researcher comes back in, puts down the other marshmallow. Now they got two. And I, I always think it's interesting on those videos to see how they wait. Some of the kids yes. are almost torturing themselves because they'll put their head like right there <laughs> on the table, like staring at the marshmallow, like, oh, I really want the marshmallow. And of course, those kids probably don't do as well as the kid who's like, well, I can't have it right now. So I'm going to go wander around and look at what else is in the room. I don't think there was anything else in the room, but they at least did something else, distracted themselves because they weren't they're choosing not to have the marshmallow. And that's, that's helpful with self-control as well is you're going to do something. Don't sit there with it, you know, get rid of it, <laughs> put it somewhere else. Don't torture yourself by just thinking about the one thing you can't have. Here's a good rule of thumb. If you go through life, always doing the easy thing, you're going to have a hard life. If you go through life, willing to do the hard things, it will make life easy. Drew. Yeah, uh, the, the marshmallow test. You're talking about eating. And every time I hear something about eating, that's my little flag goes up. It's always about eating for me, right? I like Revelation uh, 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and that's what we're talking about, conquering, self-control, right? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat 
the tree of life, which is at the paradise of God. So eating is a very strong emotion for many of us. And I find it interesting that ultimately we need to be putting our motivation, our desire to want to eat of the tree of life. All the eating in the world I'm going to do today gives me that instant gratification, just like that marshmallow did for the kids. But that instant gratification is what's going to, eating is going to kill me. Eventually, I'm dead physically. But eating from the tree of life, there's no end to that life. And that's that's the motivation. We we resist the devil by doing things to, to, to help us through those instant gratifications. Steve, are you saying like some of the kids were just trying to go around and do other things? and look at other places in the room, right? That, that's how you resist the temptation. That, that's resistant. Very good. Anything else? Anybody have any further comments on this topic before we flip over to a little bit of textual study? Here? Just this. You're talking about self-control, and we're fighting against spiritual forces. What we also need to realize is, in a sense, we, we are, you can say, fighting against ourselves, or we are denying ourselves. There's the concept of the old man and the new man. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, if any man would, this is verse 24, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. It's not deny this tempter. It's not deny this temptation. It's deny himself. And it goes on, take up his cross and follow me. In it, we remember when Jesus was crucified, he had to carry his cross until a certain point when Simon of Cyrene took up the cross after him because Jesus was too weak to bear it, I guess, at that point. But in that context, and remembering that Jesus is not the only one who was ever crucified, that they had a place for crucifying people outside of Jerusalem, crucifixion was something that people saw happen, perhaps somewhat routinely. And and I assume, typically, when somebody was crucified, they would have to carry their cross. When Jesus says, if anyone would come, would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself and take up his cross. You take up your cross when you're going to be crucified. You're taking up your cross when you're going to be put to death. And so there is this concept of the individual who becomes a Christian. He becomes a new man in Christ. He puts to death the old man. There's a life. There's an us that has to die. And so if I want to exercise self-control, I need to, to be willing to deny the person I was, deny the life that I live. Amen. Deny the idea that I get to decide whatever I want to do, submit to the idea that I need to submit to the Lord. Exactly right. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4, rather than doing the will of man, doing the lusts of man, doing my own desires, do the will of God. Very good. All right, let's switch now. We're going to switch to a textual study here, and I'd like everybody in the audience to turn to Romans 7. Uh, and as Drew read it before, you see the struggle there and the, the losing this battle of self-control going on in this text. And I want us to, we've only got about 10 minutes, so we're going to need to do this real succinctly. I'm going to ask several questions, and guys, if we can answer those quickly, quickly, and move through this one. So just to remind, we don't have time to read the whole text, but this is the text, Romans chapter 7, that says in verse 16, if what I would not, that I do, I consent to the law is good, so it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me, but to do that which is good is not. 
for the good which I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I practice. Uh, verse 23, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see a different law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity. All right, so the question here textually in this struggle is Paul describing his own personal experience as a Christian, or is Paul describing a man under the law as contrasted to a man in Christ living by the Spirit? And so the first thing I want us to do is look at verse 5 and 6, because I believe verse 5 and 6 form kind of the outline for the following text to come. Somebody read verse 5, please. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now somebody read verse 6. But now, but now we we've are, been charged. Go ahead. But, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so which of those verses is clearly describing a person in Christ? Verse 6. Verse 6. Which of those passages is describing somebody dead under the law? Verse 5. Verse 5. Now, I'm going to suggest that verse 5 and verse 6 kind of form the outline that the following texts follow. Verses 7 through 25 develop verse 5. And then 8-1 following develops verse 6. And to see why that's so, let's ask some questions. In verse 7 in verse uh, seven and following, the end of the chapter, is this fellow alive or dead? And give me the verse. Well, in verse 9, he says, sin revived or sprang to life and I died. And then in verse 14, he says, I am sold under sin. He pictures himself as somebody who is still enslaved to sin, which the Christian is not. In chapter right. 6, the Christian is free from sin. He's a slave to righteousness. Right. So this person is dead, whereas back in chapter 3, the Christian is alive. Right? Next question. Is this person redeemed or sold under sin? He's sold under sin. He's a slave. Chapter 7, verse um, 14. Verse 14. Yeah. So this, whereas back in chapter 3, the Christian is sold under sin or redeemed? Redeemed. redeemed. All right. The person in chapter 7, is this person using his members for righteousness or unrighteousness? And give me the verse. Looks like in verse 23, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Okay. But back in chapter 6, what did it say about the Christian in verse 13? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Yeah, but instead present your members for righteousness. So would Paul in chapter 6 have said the Christian's job, we can't use our members for unrighteousness, we have to use our members for righteousness, and then in chapter 7 say, but you know what I do, I use them for unrighteousness. No. Here's another question. Look at chapter 8. 
just start looking down through, say, the first 11 verses. Start calling out every verse that mentions either Jesus, Christ, or the Spirit. Well, verse 1, there's no condemnation in Christ. Verse 2, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's you free. Verse 3, God's own Son. Verse 4, the Spirit. Spirit. All the way through, Jesus or the Spirit, uh, pretty much all the way through the text, right? Mm-hmm. Now look from verse 17 through 25. How many times does it mention Jesus Christ or the Spirit? In chapter 8? No, chapter 7. doesn't, except when he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right. Only once. And we'll talk about that in a second. Now, the section 7 through 25, start telling me how many verses mention either the law or commandment. In where? In chapter 7, verse 7 through 25. Verse seven, the law that the law is sin. Yeah, verse eight, yeah, all of them, almost. Yeah, law, 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 commandment, commandment. You see that seven through twenty-five is about a person under the law breaking the commandments. Chapter eight is the person walking in the Spirit, forgiven in Jesus Christ. So look now again at verse five and six. Verse 5 said what? When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were through the law wrought in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Just pull out any verses in chapter 7 that are repeating that same idea in verse 7 through 25. Did then that which was good become death unto me? Verse 13, sin that might be shown to be sin by working death to me through that which is good. Verse 13, the second part of the verse. And then again about the the law of sin in my members, just like in verse 5, wrought in our members to bring forth death. Now look look at verse, so here's maybe a simple way to put this. If you highlight your Bible, if you highlight verse 5 in orange, then highlight 7 through 25, most of that, in orange also, because 7 through 25 is developing verse 5. But verse 6, if you highlight it in green, then chapter 8 should be in green, because that's developing verse 6. Verse 6 says, but now we've been discharged to the law, and now we serve a newness of spirit. 8 starts off with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are aware. In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and force and condemned sin in the flesh, that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but those that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. So lastly, why do we have that express? If Well, two things real quick. Somebody might say, yeah, but he's speaking in the first person and in the present. I know that in me, the good that I would, yeah, it is first person and it is present. But so is verse 14. I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul's redeemed. So even though it's first person 
and singular. He's describing here the Jewish person stuck under the law. He's the, this is a description of verse 5. Or really, anyone who is under a system of law, anyone yeah. who is trying to be righteous. I really believe what we have here is a picture of an individual who would, would like to be righteous. He wants to be yes. good, but he does not have a, available to him the grace of God in Christ. And, and so that's why then you get to the end of the chapter, and, and then you bring in Christ. Now, oh, here's where we can have the solution to this problem. But as long as I don't have Christ, however much I want to be righteous, I'm going to be condemned by my sin. And here's kind of why this is important. If I read verse 25 this way, 24 and 25, wretched man him I am, who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus. So with my mind, I'm going to serve God, but with the flesh, I'm going to serve sin. Then we walk away with, oh, great. I'm glad Jesus paid for my sins. In my mind, I'm going to appreciate that. But now let's head to the bar and pick up some girls. Right? And, of course, you go back to chapter 6, verse 1, and shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Paul's already addressed that. So what's going on in verse 24 and 25? I think it's this. He's finished without any reference to Jesus or the Spirit from verse 7 through 23. He now sums up in verse 24, says, wretched man that I am, who, and then there's a verb. What's the tense of the verb? Who will deliver me. Present or future? Future. Future. Who will deliver me. And he's jumping forward, kind of parenthetically, Jesus, he will. He's the one that will do it. But jumping back to the present, but here I am with my mind, under law, wishing I was doing right, but here's my performance, there's the law, and I'm condemned. Now, to the future in Christ, we get to 8-1. Now, there's no condemnation those in Christ. All right, thanks, guys. Our time is up, but uh, um, I wanted us to just do a textual study there on 7 at the end. Any final comments, anybody? Thanks, guys.